0: Special General's podcast. Today's guest is a number one Amazon best-selling author. His two books, which I was delighted to recently read, are The Exceptionals* and Innovation Biome. He writes regularly for organizations like Forbes. He was a senior director at Microsoft for 14 years, a CEO of several organizations. He's actively the principal and founder of an organization titled Bridges Insight, a think tank committed to personal and organizational excellence. He is also currently a senior research fellow at the University of Southern California, focused on a center for digital future. He is as well a board member of a nonprofit called Committee for Children. Lastly, he is a doctorate in pharmaceutical socioeconomics. Welcome, Kumar Mehta. So in your book, The Exceptionals, you highlight something that I thought that was very profound and a great distinction between possible best and personal best. Can you explain that more in some detail just for the audience?
1: Yeah. So we always talk about our personal bests. Whatever you're doing, whether you're running a race, you're trying to do it a little bit better than you did the last time or whether you're doing anything in any field, you're always trying to set a new personal best, which is not a bad thing. But the one problem with it is that it's a backward-looking metric. You're trying to do something better than you previously did. So you're always looking behind you. Imagine if you could look ahead and think of your possible best. How far can you possibly go? What's your limit? What's the max? And start measuring yourself against that. And when you do that, everything changes. Because now you're not trying to do something a little bit incrementally better. You're trying to do something transformational. And how you approach it changes. So if you think about, I'm just going to take the example I took. If you think about running maybe shaving a couple minutes off your race that you may do some things you may act in a certain way you may take certain steps to get a little bit better but if you say that okay my possible best is being the best in my state everything changes you don't now start thinking about shaving off a couple of minutes you start thinking about hey what do i have to think do i you think holistically you take a step-by-step approach and that's what people very often don't do because they're always looking at their personal best
0: it seems as though it's, it's more of a visionary-esque type of thinking, even the same in regards of business, you know, whether you're measuring against a, a an ideal goal, like a three-year picture versus backwards looking and trying to incrementally make improvements. And so that visionary type of thinking, looking out in front of you allows you to make and think like you had said. I really like that. I think the distinction between the two for people is good. I also think it's good to have maybe both as a measure, as you detailed in some of the metrics like micro excellence and fine tuning the details. Meanwhile, again, looking for what is your ceiling? What is your potential?
1: In Um, in the business world, this would be an equivalent in the business world would be 10% thinking versus 10X thinking. When you're trying to improve something by 10%, you do it incrementally. You just try to do whatever you're doing a little bit better. But when you're trying to improve something by 10x or 10 times, you just rethink everything. And to some degree, it's very comparable to the personal best versus possible best.
0: I like that. Yeah. Anyone listening can think of the difference between that because I think oftentimes people are either in one mode. I think if you're thinking about personal best and not actually taking any actions to play, to get to that, that, or that potential best, excuse me. You're not taking any actions to actually get to that any concrete steps or anything that's increasing traction towards that. Then you can just be a dreamer. Whereas in the opposite end, if you're just constantly focused on that 10%, you're not really making transformational changes that can get you to that, to your highest and best potential, which I think is a really cool distinction and in, in definition. That kind of just, for me, helps define the book and starts off the book in a a good direction. And then you kind of segue in, in, it seems like the book is broken out into these three core concepts or three areas of detailed, the exceptional. But before we break that apart, I wanna hear what your definition of exceptional is or the being an exceptional as it relates to maybe listeners or anyone. Yeah,
1: you're exceptional when you reach your possible best, when you fulfill your potential. We're all born with a certain degree of potential. And when you reach that or when you get close to that, you probably will never reach it. But when you get close to that, you're exceptional. And it could be in any profession. When we think of exceptional, we think of these superstars we see on TV, on on, on the playing field or on getting an award. Or, but it could be anything. You could be exceptional as an architect, as a nurse, as an accountant, as in any profession. You just need to become the best you can be. And that is what being exceptional is. Now, everyone wants... When I researched the exceptionals, I looked at people who reached the top of their field, whether they won a Nobel Prize or whether they were musicians in a big orchestra, or just people who scaled their own pyramid, and and try to understand what makes them who they are, and that's what the exceptionals is all about. And these are all people. That, I like that. And these are all people that achieve or reach their possible best.
0: So do you think that the best is domain dependent, or do you think best is just relative to whatever that person was meant to do? I guess I'm asking, do you think that an individual has a potential best in multiple domains? It's just that, that this with a sense of purpose because they couldn't reach any better because they didn't have that purpose. So I guess I'm saying like you have potential as you're born. But finding that purpose, finding that direction, finding that aim, like you detail in your so, book, is a requirement to be exceptional.
1: Yeah, you you can only become exceptional in an area where you have a natural ability. Right. I am not going to sing like Adele, or I'm not going to play basketball like right. Michael Jordan, just because I don't have those gifts. And now, but I may have other gifts. All of us have something that we can become exceptional at. You have to find out what that is. If you, if you are meant to be the greatest
0: lawyer in the world. I get. I guess let's phrase it this way as a use case. Let's say you're good at hockey, golf, and baseball, and you have a very high potential in all three of those areas in which you have the decision to obviously make that said the direction of which you'd like to go. One, the, the use of all three may actually benefit one of the others, but that's aside the point. But let's say that you do want to become exceptional and... I guess I'm saying that to become exceptional, you have to find a purpose in one of them that it, that transcends the effort that's required to yeah. do that. So you obviously have the natural ability, yeah. and so I, the thing that I like is that you you complement the effort and the purpose that's required to reach exceptional status. Not just you're naturally there. It's and I'm sure there are some that but. It's very rare that you don't see behind behind the work that goes into Usain Bolt running and winning the Olympics, for example. So I guess, does that clarify yeah, my, absolutely. my distinction? Yeah, you're right. Yeah.
1: As, as long as you start in an area, and you could be naturally gifted in multiple areas, like you said, you could be in tennis or baseball or golf or whatever you use, the three examples. And it could be in any one of them that you decide that, hey, this is going to be my thing and I'm going to become the best that I possibly and, and- can.
0: And so here's another example I think that is interesting is, and it translates to some innovation, but for an example, the shot put was traditionally done through a glide motion. And it actually took a discus thrower who is primarily good at discus throwing, which is Mm -hmm. a rotation Mm -hmm. throw. And they took that throw and introduced it to shot put. And that is now the standard throw for shot put. And so there's an interesting play there for me it's okay yeah you were good at both of these and then you translated and transferred this methodology over to this domain <clears throat> and I love those I love that where you're talking about this moment of period of you're at this potential best you're trying to find your purpose and you're trying to think about what potential best means with your innate abilities and your previous experiences etc so There's obviously a lot of variables that go into becoming an exceptional. But what I think that's really practical and great about your book is that you lay it out in these three domains and it has this nature versus nurture feel to it. But what I like about it is that the nature side of it, or instead of saying it's just nature versus nurture, you also append the idea of effort and grit and the will to succeed. And these three are... What you say are the 50% is innate abilities, your nature, 25% enablers, and 25% intense effort. Could you explain maybe those three and then maybe we can expand on them a little bit more?
1: Yeah. So if there is such a thing as a formula for becoming exceptional, that is what it is. 50% of what makes someone who they are, the best in the world at what they are, is just what they are born with, whether we like to agree with it or not. It is just... what you're born with. In the examples I I gave, if you want to become a Michael Jordan or an Adele, you just have to be born with certain set of traits that a lot of people aren't born with. And there's been enough research in here where people have studied to say that it's roughly 50% or or higher of of achievement is based on your genetics. That leaves 50% remaining. And of that 50%, roughly 25% comes from sheer hard work. And again, it's not a number I'm making up. There's been enough research that shows the link between effort and outcomes. And, and in multiple fields, in sports and education and games and in many things, the researchers have actually studied how effort results in outcomes. That's roughly 25%, 28%. But for purposes of this book, I've, I've rounded it off at 25 that leaves the remaining twenty five percent. So you've got fifty percent of what you're born with, fifty five percent of how much you put into it, and the remaining twenty five percent. And this is the make or break. Everyone knows that, yeah, you have to be, you have to be talented, and you have to work hard. There's really nothing new. But the remaining twenty five percent, the enablers, are a set of five things that I came across in my research studying many people who who've been exceptional. And they are they are the environment you've grown up in. Is it supportive? Is it does it nurture your growth? It's the self-belief you have in yourself. If you don't have the self-belief, you're not going to achieve your potential. And is that kind of self-efficacy? Yeah, exactly that, I, is, I yeah, that kind of is exactly self-efficacy. self-efficacy. It's, but you've got to have that belief in yourself. The mm-hmm. third thing is that, that you can't do it alone. Do you have the right supporting support structure? Are other people helping you, pulling you along? No one has reached the top alone. It's In fact, I think I have a chapter in the book called the myth of the solo superstar. The last two things are, one is your commitment. Just just a flat out 100% commitment that you don't have a plan B. You just go after what you wanna achieve. You don't get distracted. And finally, the last enabler is the concept that I call micro excellence. You become excellent by focusing on the little things. It's not the big stuff that makes you exceptional. It's the minutest details. It's doing the things that everyone else ignores. And these are the things that actually make or break, are the make or break elements in becoming exceptional at your field. Sorry, that was
0: too much yeah, at so once. But, uh, no, no, that- I think as far as my thoughts on the innate abilities, it's the aptitude markers and that idea of match quality. It's more of you're born with a slate of things that make you naturally a match for a certain performance, utility, environment, et cetera, and you in a specific domain we're very fortunate now where we have a multitude of domains and games and things that we can play before you may the strongest survived or whatever the exceptional status was and now we have a a bunch of games in which we can play which is a, a great benefit and i don't really i think it is interesting that there are certain personalities or certain innate features of a person that are fit for a specific area. And I think obviously, again, the intense effort, I've always been a big advocate for pain threshold tolerance and the ability to push yourself beyond your limits. As your stress tolerance increases, you're inevitably going to be able to bear more burden and take on more. Stress becomes relative at that point in time. And I I obviously encourage everyone to look at the things that you do as a ability to, to increase your burden or maybe that's the proper way, but things like running or just mental fortitude that increases that can be transferred across everything. So I think that those are really interesting because one, you can interact with your environment and you can push through certain barriers through just pure, pure strain. And then going back to the enablers, I do have some, and this goes back to this early versus general or late specialization and so it, it seems as to me that, I don't know if I want to start with this one, but I've heard both sides of this argument often. Early specialization is the your, the 10,000 hour rule. It gives you the ability to increase the amount of time required to do said thing. And the example you lay out in the book is the example by the Austrian, the famous Austrian psychologist, I think it is, about the chess family. And I think that was also with the surrounding environment, just enriching their lives in chess allowed them to become the highest level of chess players ever. And often, I think in David Epstein actually directly reflects on that point in his book and says that chess is a very confined and rule set game. And for specialization in a very narrow and rule oriented game, it actually makes sense to specialize. So, like in golf, the repetition is very simple, I would say. Whereas a very dynamic and wicked environment, the skills needed for the variability across the game is very unknown and very unpredictable. So, What's an example of that, like for an example, and that would be like the difference between playing golf versus playing ball or wrestling. The variables that go into the game are much more dynamic. And, right, there's this specialization to playing that own game, but there's skills that you can obtain from playing other games that influence your effect of that game. And so the thing that I think I agree 100% with you that no matter what, the time that you're spent doing said thing is much needed But then on the opposite end, I do understand the environment that you're playing in matters. And the benefit of the generalist is that they're able to see analogies and use cross-functional skills across the games that require or are more complex, I should say. And so I guess I would be interested to hear, and maybe it's just my own internal definition of early specialization, but I think it's more of finding your match. And your match quality, like as soon as you find your thing, start to do it as much as you possibly can.
1: So when I talk about specialization, I talk about picking your thing, picking your domain, knowing where you're going. Now, how you get there can be more broadly defined. So like you said, in chess or golf for certain things that are more skill dependent, whether it's computer programming or the many things, a certain musical instrument, you just need to do that one thing maybe in your example maybe football is different because you have to do many things that that where there's uncertainty although you would argue that there's uncertainty in golf and in in
0: many other sports also but all i say but less uncertainty like the dimensions of the game are less in in whatever i mean you know you
1: play a round of golf and you faced with countless decisions you may be faced with shots you've never ever had in your life just because of how nature affects your ball, how the terrain affects your ball. But keeping that aside, but those uh, let, let's not get into that. Okay. But getting to your point of football is different. Okay. When I say specialize in football, you just know that you want to be a football player. That doesn't mean you play football all the time. Now, all it means that you build the skills for football. One of the skills for football is right. teamwork. Whether you get teamwork skills in a football field or a basketball court, it's irrelevant. It's you're getting the skills for football. Another thing is decision making. It's leadership. It's maybe it's speed. Now, whether you get speed running with a football in your hand or whether you get speed running from a track, these are all the skills that are helping you get better. So I'm not narrowly defining specialization as just doing one thing. It's knowing what is what it is you want to do and having a goal and having Absolutely. that's what specialization is. You you absolutely need to do other things for cross training, for entertainment, for enjoyment, for getting yourself a break from doing your one thing. I'm not saying you don't do other things. I'm just saying that when you specialize, in, I'm going to be a tennis player. Borg, when he was eight years or nine years old, said, "I'm going to win. I'm going to play on the center court at Wimbledon." That doesn't mean he didn't do anything. And even people use the example of some of the tennis greats as not having specialized, unlike Tiger Woods, who specialized in a sport at a very early age. But even they knew that tennis was their thing. They just played other sports and there's nothing wrong with that.
0: So that explains the distinction. I think we get caught up. I think, no, I think that's a great, I just wanted to, I think that the nuance, the definition I could tell. And then after I read the end of your book about pulling from different resources, pulling insights from different domains and the nature of all of that, I started to understand what you meant by picking and specializing in in that nature. And even with the self-efficacy, it's uh, there's studies been done on what increases your self-efficacy. And it's actually one of the contributing factors of that is the more uncorrelated your hobby, the more likelihood of your self-efficacy. And basically it means if you're a computer programmer and a writer and you installed the the ceiling fan at your household, you're more likely to believe in yourself to take on challenges. Yeah, that makes um, sense. And and so I think that understanding and, and understanding that, well, and, and here's the thing that I am always constantly battling against, cause I agree exactly with your definition of what we just displayed is that there's parents that will at a young age, take the Tiger Woods method of training their kid and place them and think that they're a prodigy in their sport. And then they stultify the progression and growth of what it means to be that athlete or a well-rounded person for that sport. It, it works in the case of Tiger woods of course because it's a little bit more narrow of sport versus maybe more of a dynamic sport and so just understanding that from a parenting perspective of yeah encourage a, encourage a, a, encourage a kid to take pride in what they want to do but then also put them in bound put them in growth opportunities to as oftentimes sports are just a, a quick sample of what it means to be a working professional. Anyways, you're taking those skills and translating them. The majority of sports players do that. And yeah, I think that's great. And then I think as you, you talked about forgetting about plan B, this is another one, which in, which is interesting with your case, but I assume that you never had a plan B when you were making your leaps of faith from job or from career to career. Or did you always have an interest that was sparked in the background?
1: No, I followed I just followed myself. There, there were environmental reasons uh, why I did certain things by environmental reasons, family reasons or you know, social reasons. When you when I did something, I just did it. And I think one of the things that people often do that kind of holds them back is have a plan B. And plan B, by definition, is a safety net that, hey, if I'm going to be a baseball player. If, I, if that doesn't work out, I'm going to go and work with my parents or w- work in a family restaurant or whatever it may be. That's the plan B. That's the safety net. And once you keep thinking about that, in in order to become a major league player, in order to become a PGA tour golfer, whatever it may be, you really have to go all out. And if this plan B is holding you back and you're always thinking, "Ah, today I just didn't do well and maybe I should consider going and doing this other thing, that's never going to let you go out and reach. But if you just say, I am going to go and do this and that's all you think about, now there may be Plan Bs. You, you may have multiple Plan Bs. In fact, your best Plan B is your Plan A because everything you learned, you can say that. And I wrote the example about about Joan Samuels and about the Olympic marathoner who a gold medalist. She wanted to be a skier, but it just so happened that an injury prevented her from skiing. But everything she learned about skiing, she was able to translate to running. So, which she had, right. she became one of the greatest runners of all time. So, her Plan B was her Plan A. And that's something that right. all of us should think about that it doesn't matter if you don't reach your goal. Everything you learn along the way is going to help you in whatever else you do.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's great. I always think about for, so for example, with this podcast that I'm doing, this isn't my full-time profession and to some degree it, it may take away from it's this constant flush back and forth but I identify that this, is my opportunity to learn broader than what my position provides. And so as you're discussing this, I don't look at this like I'm gonna make any money or do anything in that nature. It's just, I wanna talk to people, I'm interested in it, I love reading books. So I'm like trying to identify, okay, these are all the things that happen. And I like how you're saying, the plan B can't be a hedge of security because you're unwilling to go all out what you're doing. Being exceptional, requires putting your all your poker chips to the center and I do that as, a, as an idea and I think and then I'm going to segue into this in the exceptional you t- touch also on this idea of connecting with your future self and I guess how do you know what you're doing from a from a peak performance perspective is what is best for you in the long term so it's this peak performance versus longevity art debate and so I, I see your ideas, and I see where I kind of conflict and contend, contend and contrast, so that, that's why I'm, I'm interested in what you think.
1: Yeah, so I talk about the future self, because in most cases, where we don't get to where we want to be is because we're too present-focused. We have this constant battle in our minds that, hey, I should be doing something. I, I could be resting or watching a t- watching TV or going out with my friends when I should be practicing. We always have this battle in our mind. Now, we know... We, we know that the right thing to do is go out and practice or do whatever it is you're supposed to do, but yet we pick the suboptimal option because it's instantly gratifying. Now, one way right. our studies have shown that one of the things that, that let people pick that option that they should pick is connecting with the future self, is, uh, is actually right. connecting, seeing who they are, being one with who they are 10 years from now. And if you're able to do that, and if you're able to connect with the fu- with your future self, that's when you're more likely to make the right decisions today. And one of the simplest ways to do that is you take your phone, download an aging app, put a picture of yours, and it'll age you by 10, 15, 20 years, whatever. And you just look at that for five minutes and you connect and you think about what your life is going to be when you become that person in the picture. And that's a connection with your future self. And that's when you will take the actions you need to be taking today.
0: Right. I, it's an interesting idea, right? Because the decisions you make today affect you today, but they affect the versions of you in the future. And then that kind of compounds, and can change the ripples of you in the future. And I guess the question I'm specifically asking is if I'm a professional athlete and I need to go all in, but it sacrifices the nature of X, Y, and Z in the future of my future self. Is that a pursuit worth willing to face versus a, a great example would be if I'm a bodybuilder or if I'm a, a power lifter and I'm just constantly chasing this absolute best or this potential best of mine with the sacrifice of who I am in the future, maybe that's what you're okay with your the requirements of building for a peak are different than building for longevity, whether I'm for an example, if I'm weightlifting and I'm a big bodybuilder versus I'm doing very mobility and longevity and flexibility range workouts, and I'm running, I'm doing cardiovascular. Those are two different distinct decisions. And one's better for your future self, one's better for your present self. And so I I think that there's a distinction between chasing a peak versus chasing longevity. And maybe that's just the constant decision we're all faced yeah, with is, yeah, yeah. is just the nature of the future and present self.
1: Yeah, and it absolutely depends on what you want to do. And if you want to be a weightlifter in the Olympics, and in, in, in eight years, or four years, or whatever the next, you have to take a certain set of decisions and actions. But if your goal is to be fit and healthy for the long term, you make a different
0: set of decisions.
1: So I think again, right. it goes to where you want to be goes to what you. There's a
0: sacrifice. There's a sacrifice that's made on either the future or the present in each circumstance, and those have to be weighted and understood. And I think connecting with your future self creates a, an entire time dimension on decision making and sacrifice and understanding because you can't have everything. You can't do this and that. Maybe you could, maybe. You need to you, you chase that peak as long as connecting with your future self allows you to understand the decisions you make and how they affect your future self. I think that's a exception. I don't overusing the word exceptional. Big great idea, and I like the the practical idea of downloading a picture of yourself. Is there is there anything that that you know after writing the book that you've really wished to expand on, or just as the ideas have developed and the conversations have foiled, is there anything that is really Yeah. Obviously, you're extremely passionate about it.
1: Yeah, the one thing I realized is that for most readers of the book, there's some good ideas and everyone can apply something, including me. We can all apply something or the other. But if you really want to be exceptional, by the time you're reading this book, it's too late. You're not, again, I don't, I'd love to say that you can do anything at any age, but if you want to become a great golfer or a great tennis player or a great musician, you're not going to do that after you get your business school degree. You can become very good, but you're not going to become... The best of the best, and so I want to take what I, the work I've done I, and move it to a younger age, because that's when you can make decisions that you know that can have a longer-lasting impact. You can right. certainly use the principles I've written in the book and make the best career you're in, make the best of it, and you should absolutely do that. But but if you but it, it's too late for a lot of people to do something else that that they to find out what their spark was or what their innate talent was and things like that. So I want to take it down to so what. what I, Question is what I wish I want to do now is somehow figure out how to apply it to people at the age where it's most applicable.
0: I think that's great. I think I'm a. I under, I'm at this pivotal moment in and as a young professional in which I feel still I still feel very plastic in my development, and I, I can, decisions right now are very monumental. Maybe I don't even realize down the line, and I think that this book precisely this, the na- the nature of Individuals. I don't know what your, the average reader is for this book, but after the age of 25, 26, people are pretty crystallized in in their direction. Not necessarily saying that you can't make changes or think about the world in a different nature or try to enact some of these principles in practice. But I do think that you're, there isn't enough of this content taught at a young age. I would, I, and that's what makes me also passionate with it is that I didn't understand a lot of this stuff until maybe it was too late even for myself. So it's awesome to see for sure. Do you, are you okay with moving on to the innovation sure, biome yeah. and, and touching yeah, a little bit on sure. that? Moving a little bit out of the, maybe the special generalist's talk and more into the innovation biome. You wrote a book, this is the previous book. So you wrote this around four years ago, you had stated, you had stated. Yeah, maybe four, so, maybe four or five. So. let
1: me see I Yeah, so was
0: I have it right here. <laughs> You can hold it up to the camera (laughs)
1: this is 2017 okay 2017
0: yeah so i really like this idea of culturing a innovation biome within an organization and i this is the first book i read so it was probably two three months ago so it's also not as necessary i just read exceptionals but i'll ask you some questions about it and i think i have a good understanding, I foster and try to implement a lot of this in my organization as I'm the lead champion of this. I guess to start, just define innovation as it relates and so others can get a grounding of what you're explaining in the book.
1: So I think of innovation as something that begins with an idea and it's the process that leads it into the idea of becoming something that creates societal value. I talk a lot about societal value in the book, that an innovation is only an innovation as if it impacts society in a certain way. So that to me is an innovation, something that has an impact on how we live, work, operate, play, whatever.
0: So trends, transcends the zero to one nature of, of yeah, you can have an idea or you can have this theory in a vacuum, but once it's actually implemented and and causes ripples in the way we do things as it relates to the conventional way that to my understanding is what you defined innovation Uh, correct
1: yeah it's kind of broad it's related to that but it's it's the process it's how you get it's the innovation is how you get from an idea
0: to value okay i guess why should anyone care about the idea of innovation. If you're a civil person in society and and or you're an individual within a company, what should steer you to a more innovative world?
1: Innovation is what's kept us going, right? If there was no innovation, we'd still be living in caves. Every step of the way is innovation <laughs> and it just cannot stop. And I don't think we'll ever let it stop because by nature, we're curious. We want to create, we want to do something new. We want to improve. So I don't think it'll stop, but literally every single thing that's made our life better Mm -hmm. is somebody's, an innovation. And I think we should always hear about it. It's not just a business school buzzword. It is, and it's not only like a big thing, like coming up with something brand new that no one's ever seen. Innovation is all the little things that happen every single day. And when I write about innovation, I, I use examples like the invention of the contact lenses or the invention of, instant replay, which completely changed how we watch sport on TV, it even completely changed the outcomes of sports just because we're able to do instant replay. And then, so there are all these things that in any any facet of life, there is innovation that's really impacting how that process has been done.
0: I like that. I like that a lot. And, I, and then you also detail, I think this is also a big buzzword as it relates to the Elon Musk first principles can you just detail a little bit about what first principles is as it relates to the process of innovation? Yeah. I know you detail that right away in the
1: yeah, it's basically going down the- to the studs. It's breaking things down to the core components of what it is. And Elon Musk that you mentioned uses the example of batteries that has really impacted everything that that Tesla and his other ventures have done. But batteries, conventional wisdom would dictate that batteries are just expensive and you can't build them in a way that's going to be used by the masses. And what his thinking was is that the components that make up a battery, carbon, lithium, aluminum, whatever they are, they cost pennies. They really don't cost anything. The cost is in how these things are assembled together. So if you really want to innovate, think of how these super cheap components are and put them together in a different, more efficient way. And if you're able
0: to do that you can not only power cars you can power entire cities right. that's an innovation
1: using first principles thinking
0: I love that idea it's I can only imagine the ability to think like that about everything and I think obviously that's to the success of Elon Musk and just the nature of breaking things down to how do I assemble this regardless at a physic like at a physics level Correct. how do I assemble this to its first principles in which I can get that asymptote of efficiency and production down to nearly nothing and how do we get how do we get into and accomplish that and that mindset has completely shifted i think it's becoming an underlying philosophy in the innovation sphere for sure i've heard it so much and often around that It really, and it's really fun to take conventional ideas and then just break them down, such as financial money. Often this is the Bitcoiners and the ideas of just what information theory is and the transaction of information and breaking it down to what it is. And there's all sorts of debates and contentions around that. But I love that idea of you get so caught up in the conventional bias of, for example, what finance is. And if you really think about what money is, and this is just an example, but I oftentimes fight with that because construction is very conventional based off of previous practices. I mean, it's happened from the French theorists and the British pragmatics. It's the theoretical innovation comes off as ignorant and arrogant and, and the protection of conventional practice. And so I'm always going back and forth between this because I there's ideas and things that I know are so revolutionary. And if you break them down, it's inevitable in some cases, because I believe in the innovation process and how it manifests itself. And so I I really loved reading this book because, because innovation is so broad. You oftentimes ask someone what innovation is and each person has a different definition just based off their experience. Some people say it's creativity. Some people use this first principles so I've always, I really enjoyed this. And you then following chapters, you talk about the attributes of innovation. And so one of that, or I guess I could list some of them, but I think it, one of them is priming innovation an accident meeting a prepared mind philosophy. I love that idea. Do you, you can expand on that if you would like, but I think it's super interesting. That idea of that serendipity that everyone feels when they have they strike an idea, which oftentimes comes from a primed mind.
1: Right now. In order to innovate, you, you have to, we may be seeing things every day that could potentially be world-changing, but we may just not be recognizing them. When Alexander Fleming saw a Petri dish with mold and, and an experiment when he went off on vacation, it meant something. He could have just tossed it away. That's what most of us would have done. And, but his mind was primed, hey, what's going on here? Let me dig into this. And that was the story behind how penicillin came about and right and that happens that happens in, in in everywhere the microwave oven or there's thousands of inventions that have just come across as ideas these eureka moments but they can only or even the eureka itself the story behind it but all these moments only come across when your mind is ready to accept them and see them as something spectacular and that is what i call that's what i refer to a prime mind it's an accident that,
0: i like meets a a prepared mind. I love that idea. And I think it it should incite people to be more engaged in learning and be patient also about things that may come from what you're learning now. And I read that and it made me feel like very patient as in you, you have no idea what accident may stumble upon. You may stumble upon in the future that you're the one that is prepared to have that Eureka moment for. I love that. I thought that was a great
1: and again, this Great. this is just like in the exceptionals, where I spent a lot of time researching and studying and speaking to and understanding the most exceptional people. With the innovation biome, I had the same uh, process. I studied literally hundreds and hundreds of innovations, from how, how the wheel was invented 3,000 years ago, to all the stuff we do today, like robotic surgery, iPhone, and all the stuff we do today, and everything in between. So... These things, these elements of innovation that you talked about, and priming is one of them, they're just factors that are common across every innovation throughout time.
0: I like, yeah, that's a great definition of what you're defining as an attribute. Another one you said is accepting innovation, the idea of Approving in what a fresh mind may provide to strip away how it's done, removing the conventional bias to solving the problem. Yeah,
1: most in, I, yeah, most innovations, every major innovation you can think of, the telephone, the automobile, the the internet, all of these things were, Or the iphone all of these were like laughed at or all of these were discounted when they first came out and it just stunted innovation because people weren't accepting of them but clearly the innovators were
0: do you think that uh, the reason that is because more ideas fail than they succeed and at the nature of preserving what exists and works now is at the cost just, of, of yeah. yeah. It's just
1: human nature. We just start comfortable doing things a certain way. We don't want to look at anything new.
0: If it works, don't fix it. Type of mentality.
1: Perhaps. Or when the telephone was first invented, the biggest resistance was experts, so to speak, said, "No one's ever going to use this. There's no shortage of messenger boys. If you put today's lens on tomorrow's idea, you're never going to get anywhere." And that's what I, we do. The only I love looking at the today's lens.
0: I love looking at the old clips of, of individuals on The Tonight Show and various TV shows about the internet and how that was mocked at as an innovation, as it affects the world. And why would you stream something or why would you listen to a baseball game when you could just listen to it on the radio and just the nature of of not understanding the utility of some of these. And also, and one of the things I really liked about is the next one is the network development of innovation. And just like for an example, you talked about the electric guitar and how it created ripples in multiple areas of music and different mediums. And that's a really interesting idea as well, if you want to tease that apart. yes. Yeah,
1: so no innovation happens by itself. It's always a buildup of ideas. And there's never any innovation that's not being worked on by someone else. There's always, if you look at electric cars, the first modern electric car was not Tesla was actually, I think, from right. uh, General Motors. But innovation happens when ideas build upon other ideas. Nothing is independent. Nothing is isolated. I don't remember exactly, but I think it took 80 years between the first light bulb and Thomas Edison's light bulb, or it took uh, 10 years with the example we were talking about, this accident for Alexander Fleming before another set of researchers even took it further. So ideas always build upon other ideas. It's not it's not like somebody comes in and, and creates something brand new out of nothing. Right. That's the network development of innovation.
0: And even with the Tesla, the battery, and what that's caused as a source of improvement across other car companies, automobile companies now, and how they've driven not only Tesla, other car automobile companies to, to innovate further on, EVs as well. So I think that's a great example of that as well. Do you think that, what is the biggest network development innovation you think you see today as far as the, we're in this probably pre state where it's it's in its nature in that early adoption?
1: Every innovation is a network development innovation. The reason I I wrote about it is because it's a constant in
0: every innovation. Gotcha. Uh, So
1: there's,
0: Gotcha. It's almost like the history. It's the progression of that yeah. innovation. It's almost you know, like the evolution of that.
1: If you, think of, if you think about all these great things we use today as innovations, Google didn't invent the first search engine. Search engines were always there. Apple didn't invent the first smartphone. Smartphones were there. Facebook didn't right. invent the first social media platform that was there. Microsoft didn't come up with the first PC operating system. So these are, again, but these are the things that we consider innovative. But they were not the first. They were just building upon work that was
0: already done. I got you. Okay. I don't know if I completely got it while I read it, but that makes sense now. I think these attributes are nice ways to think and break down probably different perspectives of how innovation, again, like you said, is pretty broad. And how to implement that into the culture of an organization or kind of place it as you state at innovation bio, you have this really cool, practical framework, basically acronym that it's called the care. I don't know if it's the care model. I don't know what the, yes. the care model. Yep. Okay. And it is core it's execution based, which is, it seems like it's defining kind of your process, your, your baseline, and then it's advancement for a reframing and then experiential. Can do you want to talk a little bit about each one of those?
1: Yes, a company is it's it just is a it's a little bit of a blueprint for companies that, as you think about innovation. Now, the core activities for whatever company you're in, whether it's in construction or manufacturing or software or whatever it is, there's certain things you just have to do. You have to build your product, sell it, support it, account for it, do your billing, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff you just have to do. Those are the core activities right. you can't do without them. Then there are the advancement activities. No matter what you're doing, you're always trying to get better at doing it. If you, if you, right. if you're, if you have a 2022 Toyota, you're trying to think about what you can put in the 2023 version, or for whatever
0: your product. And threading it. Throwing it back to the beginning of our conversation, when you were talking about the 10% better, would this be in that category? More or less, of let's it, make- could be, it
1: could be, potentially. But you're just thinking that, hey, what am I going to give my customers next year that they don't have this year? Whether it's software or automobiles or whether it's your movie producer, whatever. It is, you're just trying to do things better. And that's just what you have right. to do. You can't stay stagnant. Now, these are the things, the core and the advancement of things that every business does all the time now in addition to that i talk about two other things and I, you can actually bucket them into one it's reframing and experiential things which is basically either creating new things through your own r and d efforts or it's creating new experiences using what you have today for example it's not inventing an airplane it's inventing inventing it, or it's not it's not inventing software it's packaging it in a certain way so there are all these things but generally what i advocate for companies is they should think about their core activities, their advancement activities, and all the new stuff, your reframing and experiential things as three separate buckets, and invest in all of them and give each of them equal importance and not just keep your R&D or your new innovation activities out of the side. And so that's the kind of point I'm trying to get across is that all of these three things are absolutely essential for any organization to be successful in the long term.
0: I like that. So I was actually going to ask you the difference in kind of my mental abstraction of reframing experiential. I was really trying to grab my head around experiential and what that meant as it, because it seems as though those last two are more of a transformational shift versus maybe more of a fine tuning uh, of the other ones. And so that I think that like you had stated, bucketing those two maybe for a company would be maybe more practical. Yes. am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that that's a those are that's an. I was able to present this to my boss and others in my organization. We we're pretty prominent in our core processes and defining and SOPing and trying to maintain what works, and then oftentimes. I've, I go to a reframing mindset, more or less, I'll just by the nature of my thinking style. But I do what you broke out within the book is just like a table of the, of the four and the effects. Advancement is more of an analysis. Reframing is a system. It seems like it's even from a higher level or a more of a transformational idea of like you had stated. And so I guess if you're an organization, why should every organization dedicate dollars and dollars investment resource to innovation and in in this nature of kind of what you lay out in this book. Yeah,
1: because if you don't, somebody else will. Somebody else is in every industry. Somebody else is always looking to do something better for customers. And if you're not able to come up with something new, somebody else will. And we see that all. We see disruption going on in every industry. And companies get to Blind into seeing what the next level of disruptions are, and so it's really important for organizations to dedicate some effort to being the disruptors themselves and come up with the new things right. themselves.
0: That's great. I the innovation biome was great for me. I've recommended it to others in my organization. I think it's so impactful for my network of people to understand as it relates to construction. Again, is second to last. You know, I think in the in 2015, it was second to last. In the MGI index of advancement and innovation. And it's one of the biggest industries of, if you really think about what we do in construction is we put things into the built environment and the structures we place, if they're not done well, have to be maintained for however many years. And so it's such a cost to the environment, such a waste. And so the idea is it's desperately needed, but it's also... Just the nature of, one, two, the skilled labor shortage and all of these difficult problems that are necessary for the civility of society is extremely important. So that's why I'm passionate about it, in particular, my industry. And so I think that reading your book, again, you broad, cast it abroad on what innovation means to the world and society, but I think it's very practical right. and, and well, thank you. implementable. Yeah, I guess... I have two questions. I like to give big like broad questions at the end and just wrap things up. What is the most practical advice that you can give? I think it is,
1: uh, wow, that's, that, that is actually a harder question than it appears. <laughs> think about where you can go. Think about your possible best. Think about how you can minimize your potential and live up to what you were born to do.
0: I like that. And. As it relates, and my final question is, would that be similar to your advice to young people? Absolutely, know, especially the young people. I know people. that, yeah, and I know you're, like you said, you'd like to target a younger population, and I hope that the themes and ideas that you're talking about do continue to be more at the curriculum of, of younger individuals, just because it's such a it is a general idea no matter what you end up doing and where what direction you choose and it's not only just career but it's the direction you want your life to go and so i really want to commend you for taking the time and passion to to help people formulate your ideas and i also commend you for help coming on here and talking with me thank you thanks for having Um, me on i i really appreciate it it was fun and you got to listen to me ramble on and Go through my loose associations no, this of, is great. of, my, of uh, the way I think. I love this stuff. No, I, I extremely appreciate it, and I wish you the best. And thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you.